When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Justice with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In the series of Justice, we will explore the experiences of mothers in the justice system, from women who enter prison pregnant and give birth inside, to those who are separated from their children through imprisonment and involvement from social services. Each episode, I'll be speaking to expert guests and exploring what needs to change. This week, we're continuing the exploration of pregnancy and birth in the justice system by delving deeper into some of the data with Dr Miranda Davies, lead for prisoner health research at the Nuffield Trust. But first we'll be hearing from Susie, not her real name, who has lived experience of pregnancy in prison. Susie is a trustee for the charity Birth Companions and works with Dr Laura Abbott, who we heard from last week, on the Lost Mothers Project team. Hi, I'm Susie. I work for Birth and Companions as a trustee and part of the lived experience team. So Susie, can you tell me a little bit about your experience of, um, obviously we're talking about motherhood and we're talking about prison and the experiences some people have. Yeah, I was remanded to to prison and I remember when, you, when you're remanded and you go from court straight to prison and you're being checked into reception, everybody takes the pregnancy test. And that's where I discovered I was pregnant to my alarm. Um, I already am a mum, but it just it was just a just a shock of the of the news. So it was it was almost like I wasn't prepared. Normally most people know ahead of time, but everything happened quite fast. Um as I as I spent my first couple of nights in prison, it was aware that my pregnancy wasn't really acknowledged. Uh, I was sharing a cell with a lady and she had snooped through my notes so she could see I was pregnant. And she said to me, it's not safe for you to be here on the top bunk because we were in a double cell. And she's like, you really shouldn't be on the top bunk. You should speak to a prison officer. So I spoke to a prison officer and to his alarm, he didn't realise I was pregnant either. So it was quite worrying that that wasn't common knowledge you just you would just think that would be something that would be known but it wasn't disclosed to the the prison officer so he moved me to another another cell with uh, 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 seven other people um that where the beds were on the ground floor but as you can imagine seven people sharing one sink one toilet is absolutely like 
chaos and a lot of people in in one room is 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 very was very contentious I, I was put it, I was under a lot of pressure it was very very stressful especially as everybody has their own unique needs and emotions so I asked to be moved again moved again and um they moved me to the pregnancy wing which also shocked me because if there was a pregnancy wing, why wasn't I yeah. there? You would have thought you'd go straight there once they realised you were pregnant. Because how many places or how many beds were there on the pregnancy wing? Well, there was quite a few, but it was a mixture. So they had vulnerable people as well as pregnant people and um, high-profile prisoners there. So it was it was a mixture. Would you say it was more of a vulnerable prisoner's wing or a pregnancy wing? Well, they called it the pregnancy wing. So it neighboured the mother and baby unit. So that's what they're referring to as the where the wing where they send pregnant people, which is a bit, oh, okay. But I, I would just assume that because if there's not that many pregnant people that they would put put someone that could coincide with pregnant people on the landing from my own assumption right and then I went went to the pregnancy wing but even there whenever I I got really big really fast and I remember the ladies would be like you need to ask for a pregnancy pillow you should have a pregnancy mattress and this was other prisoners telling me and ladies from the mother and baby unit and I thought to myself as well why wouldn't they just give it to me or or tell me like do I need art or ask me do I need one there was a lot of things that just seemed like a mystery um even going to your first scan how many months pregnant were you or how many weeks pregnant were you when you came into prison I think I was about six weeks when I when I when I arrived right at the beginning because I had had a period the following months I couldn't have been so pregnant yeah I would say there was just uh things like food so as my appetite grew um I had I had support from my family and friends and savings of my own so I was able to buy food from the canteen but it wasn't very nutritiously rich it was more like tuck shop at school and they inflate the prices so like whatever it would be outside in prison you pay a premium as a prisoner everything um prison like is for profit it's not non-profit and um, when I was hungry and I asked for more food, they told me that I was only, I wasn't, I wasn't going to get a bigger portion. They, the prison would, wouldn't support that. And um, I, I couldn't go, uh, there was lots of things that I was, when you're pregnant, you're not allowed to do. So, so it, um, when I was speaking, when, when they, the ladies on my landing could see how hungry I was, the ladies on methadone would post their sandwiches and stuff through my door. Oh, wow. They said because they take methadone, they're not hungry and that they knew I was so that I could have them, which was sad, but I was so, so grateful. That's amazing. And um, tell me about your scans. You were saying that um, you'd go out for the scans, I presume. Yeah. So um, they, they don't tell you when your scan is. And I went to my first scan alone with the prison officers because um, they didn't... Uh, in order for my partner to come, they they said he had to, they had to run a CRB on him. He had to provide an image, but it's only because I asked. So on the run up to my scan, they they didn't say anything. So when it when I started asking, the 
they let me know that he wouldn't be able to come to the first scan because they hadn't processed the application form yet. So I had to go to the first, he missed the first scan before they could process his application because he said he did it on the same day he received the things that he needed to do and he submitted them to the to the prison, but they couldn't process it in time. So he couldn't attend the first scan, but it was just like, because I found out I was pregnant from the beginning, they had weeks to tell me like if I would like someone to come with me. It's kind of sad because I can't share the photos with him. Oh, I have to post them, which isn't free, um, in order for him to see the picture. So it's like we we're we're it's it's kind of was was kind of sad. And then when when I had an emergency, he also couldn't come because they were worried that I would escape or they said it's a security risk. This bit so, I find really unfathomable. Um, how many how many months were you by then? I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but it's just always that sort of image of a heavily pregnant woman who's suddenly going to become a flight risk and sort of jump a wall and sort of run off at 100 miles an hour. It's just ludicrous. Well, this was my first trimester and I, I woke up and I had pains in the evening and I had to, I rang the buzzer and I had to wait for the prison officers to come and they were going back and forth because in order for you to come out of your cell just in general, you they need they have a protocol. So they asked me how I was feeling, like um how like on how's my pain. I'm guessing they were talking in between the the hospital and then they decided eventually after a few hours and um that I could go to the hospital. But it's the same protocol as if you would go to court. The, um you needed two prison officers to go with you and then you go through the security process to check that there I don't have any um thing with me that I can take or give anybody and then we went in the van to the to the hospital handcuffed because they said right. just in case I escape or even though it's an emergency that I still need to be handcuffed so I sat in the crowded A&E handcuffed while the poor people in A&E look so scared, so embarrassed, so, so embarrassing. Just to reiterate, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said you were on remand, right? Yeah, yeah. So you had not been sentenced for a crime? No, you are essentially... Guilty until proven innocent. Exactly, not the other way around, which is what everyone talks about. Right, so you're in the waiting room, everyone's looking at you. Yeah, and with every reason, because I'm pretty sure if I saw the sight of handcuffs and and the people in uniform, I would be scared too, because you you just don't know. Well, yeah, as you say, it's quite alarming. And then uh, we had to wait to see the doctor. And then when I saw the doctor, I was bleeding. And he said, because it's so early in my pregnancy, that I have to wait for the early pregnancy unit. But because it's Saturday, this hospital didn't have uh, an early pregnancy unit open or anybody available to, to scan to to do the scan to see me so I would have to go home and wait until Monday but obviously if I was released I could have gone to a hospital where there would have been an available early pregnancy unit open but even on the way to the to the hospital the the prison officers were annoyed and because this was like an inconvenience for them because they would they they were due to go home and my medical emergency in fact, was inconveniencing their early, their their early arrival home. So when the doctor was saying there was nothing he could do, you could see like they were almost elated 
because it meant that they would be able to go back to the prison in time. And then I remember the doctor was like, he can give me some paracetamol and I can, I'll have to come back. And um, it was almost like he wasn't talking to me, he was talking to them. Because it's yeah. like they don't know who, who they're so, supposed to be talking to, even though I am technically the patient. And it was so frustrating because you feel so helpless because you're not in control. Like, this is supposed to be my decision, my body. But as a prisoner, it's almost like you have somebody else making decisions for your needs and and they don't have your needs in mind it's it's it the prison you are a prisoner first and a person second and so on the way back in the in the prison car they the the prison officer turned to me and she was like well maybe this just isn't meant to be and that night I was so so sad when I spoke to my partner on the phone well I wouldn't say I spoke to him because I couldn't even put my words together and then I remember the next morning my cell opened up and they were like, you need to come outside. And I just, I, I, I spent the whole night thinking I, would, I had lost my baby. And I remember I was being chastised and threatened by the prison officers because they were like, you have to come out, you have to make your bed, you have to clean up. And it became quite clear that they hadn't told them that I had been to hospital and they hadn't told them what had happened. So they're... they're they're berating me, letting me know that they would sanction me if I didn't follow the prison protocol for the day. But again, love, lucky the ladies on my landing were able to see there was clearly something wrong. And they fed me, they cleaned up my cell around me while I didn't move because I was just so sad. And I was able to communicate to one of them while they comforted me and they someone went to speak to the prison officers. But it was just like, there's, there's like zero communication amongst them almost like I was for my my baby was forgotten and then on the Monday I remember I was I was sitting up from like 4am waiting and then when they unlocked the cell I was saying to them like well when are we going to the hospital and they were like well we can't tell you that in case you tell somebody and they come to the hospital and that's the last thing I'm worried about (laughs) at this point I didn't even want company I just wanted to know if the baby was okay I would have been a-okay, like, my partner not being there, as long as I can see the baby is okay. And yeah. I just sat there for hours. I didn't I didn't go downstairs for, for fresh air because I just wanted to go to the hospital and just sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting till somebody finally came to come and get me. And we went through the same process again to come out of the prison while they they explained to me, like, I'm not to contact anybody and and I have to, they need to make sure that I haven't told anybody that I'm supposed to be going to the hospital. It sounds like you were being treated like a category A prisoner as opposed to, you know, a, a female prisoner on remand. Well, I mean, uh, I, I just think they're very, um, do everything very by the book. They, they were, they definitely, they don't bend for anybody. That's what I would say. Yeah. And then we went to the hospital and still... <laughs> handcuffed of course um when I went for the exam they were trying to stand on the inside of the curtain and it was and it was just like the snogger was like you don't need to stand here because they kept saying oh there's two exits as if I'm going to go for my exam to check on my baby's wellness to use this opportunity to to escape 
because there was so much emphasis on escaping. That is absolute madness, isn't it? Whilst sort of whilst you were being examined. Yeah. So they stood on the other side of the curtain and I was so relieved that the baby was fine. But it, they said, you no, know, bleeding can be common. Yeah. But it was just so, but just, it was just nice for the, to know that my baby was okay. And then we went back and, and everything was fine. But as I got bigger, it just, it seemed like every day was something new. So like, uh, as a prisoner, you're only allowed a limited amount of clothes. So as I got bigger, every other week, it felt like things just weren't fitting. And my partner had bought maternity clothes. And ironically, my bump just weren't, wasn't a bump made for maternity clothes. So it's just things like, sometimes I just felt like, this is like a conspiracy, nothing fits. And I remember they used to be so frustrated and telling me what a luxury I had to be able to hand in and hand out clothes because normally you were only allowed to hand out clothes twice a year for seasonal reasons. But they were saying, you know, I'm doing it very frequently, but it's not because of vanity. It's just so I could be comfortable. Yeah, and so you could actually wear some clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, otherwise I'll be in a prison tracksuit in, in the height of summer because it, it came to a point where it was just like, I'm so huge and I'm so hot. Yeah. So so hot and I'm and like I've got like two tops that fit and like one one pair of leggings that just about cover my bump. And this is this is kind of where we are. And it was just like the rhetoric that I should just be happy that I'm even getting an opportunity to to have a replacement of clothing or just just general like things that you would think would be normal. Yeah. I was going to ask so so what happened from there? I mean you know, you were on remand, you're going through your pregnancy. Where did you end up having your baby and how did it progress? I was released from court in, in the winter. After how many months? After six months on remand. Okay, so you were found um, not found guilty. Found not guilty, yeah. And I, was, and I was released from court and then I had to reintegrate into society. So it's so, so interesting because it's when I went to the another hospital closer to my house... Uh, hospitals don't communicate <laughs> so I came with my note my my notes and stuff from the other hospitals so they could see the measurements of the baby and see that I had been attending and I remember her first question although I have hospital notes is like why am I only coming now and I was like no I have been going to hospital but I was in prison and then automatically she was alarmed and she paused and she was like, oh, well, how are you doing? What are you, like, how, 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 how are you? And are you working and stuff? And I was like, yeah, I'm working. Um, I'm returning back to uni in, um, in the next, um, in, in the next year. Um, everything's fine. Ironically, a lot of things were okay when I returned. I'm quite good at saving. Um, I was allowed to come back to work because I was found not guilty. So, I was able to go back to work and and continue my course at university. And it's almost like she was in disbelief. So the midwife did a social services referral, even though I said I was okay, which was alarming to me. And it kind of creates a little bit of distrust because if you've asked me a question and I've been honest. I could have said I came from another country because they don't, it's evident that there's no there's no communication across the board I was, I was so honest and I felt like 
it was almost like hearing I'm a prisoner meant that she was, wasn't listening to anything I was saying anymore. Yeah, exactly. And so because you had been put into prison on remand, it's like she was penalising you for the fact that the system did that to you. Yeah. The one yeah. thing that I've, I've learned is that when you're a lot of people on, there was a lot of people on remand being released from court. It's almost like um, a, a knee-jerk choice for for CPS to use. It's easier to remand you than let you out into the community. And so you really do think about, you know, it calls into question whether it's being done too eagerly, um, you know, particularly if someone's pregnant and and sometimes maybe it is appropriate to remand people into custody. But I think on the whole, we just seem to have a you know, too much of an eagerness in this country to do it. Well, yeah, when you look at the countries that don't, it was quite surprising to me places like Mexico and Brazil, countries that you would think that, like, they were a lot stricter. They don't send pregnant people to prison at all. So they put the wellness of the baby first because I just think it's not really a safe place. Um, I, I, I do see things at both sides of the coin. I'm not under any circumstances saying, oh, you should just never be punished. Because I feel like that seems to be a conversation that has been had a lot lately. As if we're, if I'm saying like, because I'm pregnant, I get out, I get out of jail, jail free card. You don't just magically become pregnant. It It's a happen, like for me, it literally was like a happenstance. I was as shocked as the other person. Right. So I I just think, especially when there are other options and the impact it has on families, on the children existing, not even just the child that you're carrying, when you send somebody, uh, a mother to prison or even a caregiver, when there's other opportunities and even the crimes that they're sending them for and the disproportionate between men and women because when I'm when I looked at the statistics, <laughs> I was alarmed to see when they are crimes where there are other options, as in tag and community service, that it seems to be women they're sending to prison and not men. Yeah, well, that's because in this country we are able to send women to prison for their own safety, um, but that doesn't happen with men. Um, it's it's extraordinary. There's a real dysfunction there. Can I ask how how your baby is? Oh yeah, he's doing really well, really well. He's a very big boy now. Very, very How old. Um, he's nine now, but he was a very oh, wow. healthy ten pounds, and he, <laughs> and he was and he was early. So I remember them saying to me like, "This is really the biggest baby we've ever delivered early." <laughs> Thank goodness he was early. Can you imagine if he went full term? Honestly, uh, if it wasn't for birth companions as well, they're they're lovely. All of the support that they offered, I wasn't. I wouldn't even be able to be feel empowered or strong enough to advocate for my own birth because even that was complicated because he was big and we knew that from the beginning. But, you know, when you change hospitals, different doctors feel feel differently. So I had to advocate for that as well, which can be quite exhausting because the medical professionals um, always have strong ideas on how they want things to go, but we I was able to have him two weeks earlier. And did birth companions work with you when you were on remand in prison? Yes, yes, um, they did. It all, Although they were um, birth classes and it was, it is literally like uh, uh, the uh, only time where I felt like a person 
this the only time where you're being spoken to like yourself, where you don't feel like a prisoner. The the sessions weren't only just a way to 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 get out of my cell because when they first approached me, I didn't want to go, but to sit down, it's it's like two hours where. They gave me all of the advice. They told me things I didn't even know, and I'm a mum already. Right. So, so it was like I was hearing revelations, but it was really everything that they they provided things like maternity bras, where I would I I couldn't go out and go and buy my own. They gifted me with one to make my pregnancy a bit easier, but they were always a non-judgmental ear. They never promised things that they couldn't do, but. They they even do things that are not not on their manifesto. I always say, like, if only people were aware of the things that they actually are capable of. So there's stuff that they agree to do, but there's the things that they've done are beyond measure and so many women's lives that they have impacted. And I'm so lucky to to have encountered them because I don't think that I would have been so felt so strong while I was there without them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank goodness for them. For the benefits of the listener, um, Birth Companions is a charitable organisation, isn't it, Susie, um, that works with women and mothers, particularly across across the female prison estate and on the outside of the prison walls. Is that right? Yeah. So they support vulnerable women in prison and in the community and and postnatal as well, not just and not not just whilst they're pregnant. So even after they've supported you, they they never they never stop staying in contact. There's they, we always receive emails and communication. They always ask for updates. So it's not like you're just abandoned after you have your baby. They they offer to come to your your birth if you need them to. So it's it's just a service that I never thought that is I didn't know it could exist. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And if anyone's interested in learning more about them, we'll make sure that there's some information in the footnotes to the podcast. But Susie, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your story because, you know, it's difficult to unearth these things sometimes, isn't it? But I'm just really pleased we managed to get your voice on the podcast because it's it's so important to hear it from the women who've actually experienced it because I certainly find a lot of the time people kind of don't believe you or believe me when I say these things happen. Um, and they do. So so thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. My next guest is Dr. Miranda Davies, the lead for prisoner health research at the Nuffield Trust. Miranda shares an overview of the data they've collected around pregnancy in prison. As you will hear, much of this further elaborates on some of the experiences Susie spoke about, such as the difficulty attending appointments and the inappropriate use of cuffs on pregnant women. Hi, my name is Miranda Davis. I'm a senior fellow from uh, the Nuffield Trust, and I lead on our ongoing programme of work looking at how people in prison access and use hospital services. So we look at when people are admitted to hospital, when they visit um, access emergency or A&E, and also when they go in for outpatient um, appointments as well. In case you're not aware, the Nuffield Trust is a charity and a think tank. And broadly speaking, we carry out research and policy analysis that aims to improve uh, the quality of healthcare that people receive. So the work that um, I lead on is funded by the Health Foundation, and we've been doing it for about five years now. For the work focused on women in prison, we looked at how women of any age who were in um, a prison location in England were using hospital care. So particularly when they were admitted to hospital, because that's where the data tends to be 
most detailed. So we looked at data from uh, 2019 moving into 2020, and it showed us quite a lot of things. So hospital data is enormously detailed, and we, we could see from it immediately there was that there were some real challenges that women in prison face in terms of um, their access to hospital care. So we could see from our work that about 45% of outpatient appointments are missed. So already you're sort of seeing slight alarm bells there and, and thinking, well, why is this happening? What are the reasons why appointments tend to be missed? And then there are also particular challenges for pregnant women in prison in terms of their health outcomes. So we could see that they were more likely to experience uh, premature births and deliveries than women in the general population. And this is, we don't want to see this happening. Obviously, it's not in anyone's interest if women are giving birth prematurely for both women themselves and um, and the babies, of course. Um, And this is particularly important if we think about, you know, the awful cases at um, Bronzefield and Style over the last couple of years, just to sort of highlight that actually women in prison are at risk, particularly if they're pregnant. And although care for women in prison should be equivalent to care in the community, you know, there are clear examples of where health outcomes for women are um, not what they should be. Yeah, and I think particularly just with the physical barrier of that and that statistic of what 45% of women in prison don't get to their appointments in hospital. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, you know, you need the staff, don't you? And we have a problem in our prisons at the moment that there aren't enough staff. So, of course, that impacts, I imagine, on opening a cell door and chaperoning someone to their hospital appointment, which I imagine takes more than one officer. So it's quite resource intensive, isn't it? So I know that's a not a particularly nice way to look at it. We looked at um, and thought about why appointments were being missed as part of our work. So I should say as well that um, and we had a, a really um, engaged stakeholder group who we work with as part of, of all the prison health work we do. So these um, are organisations um, that are interested in and have expertise in the care of women in prison and then people who work in prisons themselves and then also um, women with lived experience of prison. So we spoke to a wide range of people and organisations to try to understand some of the challenges that Uh, women in prison were facing and in terms of missed appointments staffing is a key part of it so for every escort out to hospital there's no hard and fast rule but you know you need at least one member of staff to go out to hospital normally two dependent on the categorization of of the woman in prison and we know at the moment that staffing is is an enormous challenge and therefore escorts can't always be fulfilled we also saw in our work that challenges around um, maternity-related appointments being missed. So this is obstetrics and gynaecology and midwifery appointments. That's also, I think, important to think about if we have these this small group of women who, who are extremely vulnerable in, in prison, if they're pregnant, that actually even they can't guarantee that they'll be able to get out to hospital appointments. I should say as well, though, that it's not just staffing that mean appointments are missed. There are other reasons as well. So because women are not told when their appointments are going to be, sometimes they clash with other things. So on the day somebody comes to the door, it might be that there's a family visit due that day or a court court appointment scheduled, or perhaps they've been moved to another prison and they're not even there um, anymore. Um, And as part of our work, when we spoke to women with lived experience of prison, they also highlighted that actually there's no preparation. So if suddenly someone comes to your door and says, okay, you need to go into gynecology in hospital today. If you're in the community, you might, you know, think about the clothes you're going to wear, kind of prepare yourself mentally, maybe, you know, have a bath. Um, None of that is possible. So you can, you can really see why actually people are potentially reluctant if suddenly somebody says, actually, you're going out today and they may not want to at Mm. that moment because they know that. And I imagine there's something around trust as well, isn't there? It's like, 
oh, this has been sprung on me, and particularly women who've suffered trauma or might have been abused. Going to hospital could be a terrifying place. Who knows what's gone on with people in their backgrounds? And Yeah, if it was somebody in the community, they might be able to take a friend with them or somebody to support them. And yeah, like, as you say, that, you know, can't happen. So it's another thing that can make... Um, appointments uh, be missed as well I mean one of the things we recommended based on our work is that actually people do need clear information and to actually understand you know really basic stuff around this so how do we make appointments what happens if appointments are cancelled are cancelled how can I follow up on things and this needs to be available to women in a format that suits them. So, you know, bearing in mind that literacy can be a challenge um, in the prison population, we have to think about different ways of doing things. And that actually, it shouldn't just be for the women themselves to kind of seek out all this information and find it. We need to make sure, one, that it's available, but two, that it's being used and being presented in a really sensitive way. So this is where, um, you know, organisations that have expertise in um, working with people with lived experience in prison and also people in prison, obviously, can have a real role in making sure these voices are heard in, in terms of how information um, is made available. Yeah. And then with that section of women that you said, um, what percentage was it that go into preterm labour? So we looked at births between 2016 and 2019, and it was 11% of births. So more than one in 10 births okay. were premature. And is that due to the sort of traumatic surroundings of a prison and sort of maybe anxiety that brings it on? Or, I mean, I know it'll be lots of reasons, but... Yeah, I, th I think there is a lot of reasons, but um, I think it... What it, point, what it points to and what, and what our um, stakeholders said to us is that actually, if anything, they need women need more resources and support in order to kind of address that balance and challenge from when they go into prison. So, you know, we, we've all heard many times that care in prison sh should be equivalent to the general population. Equivalence, it, it doesn't mean the same. It's actually about thinking what we want to achieve for somebody who's in prison. We might they might need more resources to get the same end result as somebody. Um, in the general population. So, you know, if, if for women that have experienced abuse or trauma prior to prison, that might mean having additional support to go out to appointments, having additional care from midwives in prison, or a variety of things. But, um, you know, I think it's about not paying lip service to the idea of um, equivalence of care, but actually thinking, what does that really look like? Yeah. And why do you think it's taken so long for this data to be gathered at a national level? Because you sort of think, gosh, women have been around for quite a long time. <laughs> Prisons have been around for a pretty long time. Women have always sort of given birth to children. And um, it's sort of, it's kind of horrifying, isn't it? It's great that it's being done. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I but. Th yeah, I, th I think it's great that now this information, you know, is being publicly reported. But you're right that, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that there are, one, that there are women in prison, and two, that there are therefore women who are pregnant slash going to give birth. I think there is a there is a, an interesting point there that actually, you know, I, I find myself when I speak to people about this work that actually maybe people don't even really realise there are pregnant women in prison. You know, I, I think prisons are, are not an environment people think about very often, and so therefore it kind of, it can actually come as a bit of a surprise. So maybe it's about making you know the complexity of this population a bit more accessible for everybody to understand that actually you know we have very elderly people in prison we have very young people in contact with the criminal justice system pregnant women disabled you know disability issues neurodiversity like the list is endless and it, you know 
it's there's a very simplistic picture painted of the prisoner population and actually it doesn't reflect the reality and this is the challenge that pregnant women then face um in trying to you know navigate their way through um that environment um I think it's interesting how those figure why how and why those figures are now published I think the awful cases at Bronzefield and Style are, are a big part of why you know attention was placed on this as an issue and that therefore it has driven change which and you know and a lot of organizations um have worked for an awful long time to improve um you know publication of data in this space birth companions being one for instance um and that is great you know so another thing we recommend in our work is that actually we do need to use use data in a in a clever way to sort of shine a light on on a population that are experiencing inequality so I mean, NHS England now have this core 20 plus five initiative to, you know, shine a light on and address inequality that's affecting um, the most 20 percent deprived in the population. And prison is included as part of the plus of core 20 plus five. So there are positive steps and there's lots of discussion about how data can be used as part of this. And it can be really powerful. I mean, when the cases happened, um, you know, at Bronzefield and there was public reporting in this space, we were able to show in our work that in 2017-18, one in 10 births were taking place outside of a hospital setting. So this is women either giving birth in a prison cell or en route to hospital. And, you know, we we don't want this to happen. And when when I discuss this with people who don't know about prisons, they're always horrified that it does happen. Um, You know, to state the obvious, prisons don't have the resources to deal with somebody in labour, um, or the staffing expertise, you know, and that's the reality. And that's why then, you know, when these things happen, you know, what happens in the end is always so awful. Yeah. And for those listeners who don't know, um, just quickly, the case of the baby in Bronzefield was, um, she was a young care leaver, wasn't she? Um, 18 or 19 years old, who was remanded into custody. So was not serving a custodial sentence yet. She hadn't been sentenced. And she was pregnant. She went into labour. One evening, as I understand it, pressed her alarm bell quite a few times. No one came. And the end result was she gave birth to her baby, who then died at some point. And she wrapped her baby up, didn't she, in her bedclothes and got into her bed in her cell and then was found in the morning. And an officer came on duty to walk in to find um, what she found. So a horrific story and a similar sort of story then happened at HMP style I think about a year later yep. so my question really with um, any data that's gathered brilliant that it's being gathered mm-hmm. how do you hope to or is it not for you to then work out how to use it to drive change and for action so I think part of it part of our work is is descriptive because there is such a lack of any basic information. So there is, there's a kind of a very basic benefit of actually saying, you know, we have X number of prisoners who are going out to hospital each day. Hmm, this seems unusual because of the needs of this population, we think it should be much higher. So there is what we what we tend to find with our work is that um other organizations and advocacy groups um can take this quant- quantitative data and use it as a source of evidence um, in the work that they do as well. So we try to, we make the work very data-driven. So so the perspective that we provide on it in our write-up uh, comes from our engagement with stakeholders. So we can kind of pull in the relevant context, but the, the data has to be rigorous and kind of stand on its own to then be used in lots, um, 
in lots of different ways. Okay. And I guess, you know, that's useful for third sector organizations and charities and any of any of us that work in this space. It's so useful to have data um, because, you know, I've worked in this space for a couple of decades now and it's nice to finally have some data about pregnant women in prison. You know, I started working in style prison when I was 21, so 20 years ago. Um, and I just presumed there was a mother and baby unit mm. there and there still is. Yeah. And I naively presumed, age 21, that, of course, these things would be counted and there would be some data. Yeah. Absolutely unfathomable because my point is always, so policy gets made and legislation gets drawn up, but how can we be, how can the government or anybody be creating and writing policies based on no data mm -hmm. or based on bad data? Like, that's really genuinely worrying. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that. And I think... In terms of areas where more data and information is needed as well, we um, another recommendation from our work is that actually, in addition to thinking about pregnant women in prison, we also need to think about women who enter prison with young children and that actually they will have needs to consider and it will have an impact on them whilst they're in prison. And if we can understand that um, it better, we can provide better support um, and also linking up family and health services in prison. So, you know, it's not enough just to say, how how many women in prison have children, you know, in 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 that kind of really important first thousand and one days of life, so up to the, up to the age of two, we've got to think, you know, how do we ensure that those children can have can you know have appropriate uh, space to visit, you know, parents and keep up relationships and, you know, all all of the official reports and white papers that come out about prison talk about you know this mad mythical golden thread but you know we need impetus to to actually go more than just saying it's important there needs to be resourcing time and understanding yeah I can sometimes hear the the naysayers saying oh well they shouldn't have committed the crime and they sort of deserve to be in prison but actually this is about sort of being slightly more intelligent I think mm -hmm. about the collateral damage because mm -hmm. people can just see a crime being committed and I think act emotionally mm. and react emotionally to that, which mm. is understandable. And then one might say, well, they deserve to be punished. Fine. Mm. Liberty is removed. Mm. But of course, <laughs> if you're not thinking about the collateral damage that's being yeah. done around the outside, the children that are left behind, the sort of families that are left behind. And of course, you know, it's complicated, it's nuanced, yeah. it's expensive. Mm. Um, with, I think sort of talking about it more. Yeah. I think we're understanding it more, but I think yeah. it's sort of very difficult to sort of see the solutions because we're so focused on the institutions that we have, aren't we? Yeah. So I guess what I'm thinking about is we have the NHS, we have secure hospitals, mm. we have um, drug and alcohol services, but yeah. sometimes these things yeah. sit in between. There's not. They're not necessarily kind of joined up thinking about, yeah, how to care for people that can filter between all of the things that you've just mentioned. Yeah. Were there yeah. any other things in your report, any stats that sort of particularly stood out? I'm sure there were probably lots. But. Yeah, I, th I think another another area that, you know, was, was sort of aw awful in what we found is, is thinking about um, needs related to substance um, misuse. Um, so obviously the, the, st the statistics around um, self-harm and the impact on women in prison are really quite startling. And we can see that filter through in people's need for hospital care as well. So I think that's another important thing to take on board. You know, the point you made about not thinking about this as a, as a sort of um, a simple imp 
issue because women are in prison, well, just like men are in prison for all sorts of reasons. But women, I think, make up, there are, I think it's about 4% now of the total population is women. So numbers are small. The majority of women are in prison for non-violent offences. And actually, it can have an earth-shattering impact if someone goes to prison for a short sentence on children being fractured from their from their mum. You know, also as well, often it's uh, mothers who are the primary caregivers. So that whereas if you have um, a dad that goes to prison, you'll have the mum that's looking after the children. The reverse isn't always the case. So yeah, I think it's trying to get a bit of understanding about that complexity and also the reasons why women are in prison so if this is for you know non-payment of bills is this this a good use of public exactly Um, exactly (laughs) and there are some sort of people that are dangerous uh, potentially to us and the predatory nature of Mm. some individuals that will spring to mind probably if we Mm. think about the recent cases in the Met Police and but that's they're very few and far between luckily Mm. and actually yes the argument is should we be locking up lots of people who aren't a risk to the public Mm. and the damage that we're therefore doing to so many other people. And actually, I think also sometimes people can forget that we, the taxpayer, do pay for it. And all the statistics are going in the wrong direction Mm. in the sense that the reoffending rates are very high. Then um, particularly when women get sent into prison, that's when the children go into care. And we all know that when children go into care, the statistics are very bleak for them and their futures. Yeah, I mean, I I hope that things will change and become more positive. I think what's what I find interesting about the work that we do at the Nuffield Trust is that we've we've done work covering all aspects of, of the prison estate. So men in prison, you know, we're shortly be um, publishing a piece on older people in prison. The work on women in prison always has the most interest. So I think, you know, there is a bit of scope here because it's an area where perhaps there's slightly more sympathy to change that narrative about an understanding about what's happened in prison. And and a lot of the challenges that we've talked through today and in terms of how they affect women in prison are exactly the same for men in prison. So missed appointments, challenges around substance misuse, you know, issues to do with staffing, if not more so in the, in mm. the male estates. So, you know, hopefully things will change for the better. We have to be hopeful, don't we? Yeah, we do. <laughs> forever, forever have hope. Yes. Um, <laughs> Because I suppose also it's not good for the hospitals to be having lots of missed appointments. So actually, this isn't just about the prison system, is it? Mm. Um, This is about the knock-on effect, as I was talking about the collateral damage with the children. Yes, Mm. but then what about the pressure that whether it's badly managed prisons or whether it's Mm. actually just prisons under Mm. too much stress and strain without enough money to resource them properly, really has a very big impact on the NHS, which really does not need (laughs) the extra pressure put on it, right? I mean, one benefit of um, benefit of COVID sounds sounds strange, but the the, the techno- <laughs> <I know you. laughs> technology to um, conduct, say, outpatient appointments remotely. There's been, you know, we, we've moved light years during COVID in terms of facilities that are potentially available to for uh, virtual appointments. So perhaps this is. Um, another way to improve missed appointments by providing more care remotely because people have also said to us as well that actually for somebody going out of prison to hospital it can be a really awkward and uncomfortable scenario you know if they're on a long chain to go to the the toilet people are staring you know so actually being inventive and thinking about different ways to provide care is another 
potential way things could be improved. I mean, it's not a cure-all because obviously for some types of um, care, you can't you can't do it remotely, you know, and it, it relies on the technology working, which we also know from COVID is not always... <laughs> It's not always a given. It's not always perfect. Um, yeah. Can you explain when you said the long chain? Yes. Can you explain because it conjures up quite a quite a picture of so heavily pregnant woman being escorted out of prison yeah. to an appointment. Yeah. So all of this should be risked assessed. So the the example of the long chain, I don't know if that would be the case with pregnant women, but it certainly can be the case with say you know a, a, a male escorted out. Um, to hospital, um, that they'll basically be attached to the officer via a chain. The reason I ask is because, A, it sort of conjures up quite a sort of picture, and mm. I think it's so interesting, these yeah. moments in between yeah. prisons and hospitals and how people are transported, because yeah. this also brings into question, um, you know, having been heavily pregnant myself quite a number of times, yeah. um, and when you are close to giving birth, mm. it hurts just to sit yeah. And you can't even sit properly. And I remember being in a taxi once and um, the guy driving sort of flew over some speed bumps and yeah. my God. Yeah. <laughs> so it it is just all those things that sort of add up, don't they, to the sort of potential trauma that someone's already suffering mm. and then being transported in a way. And if they're being transported in a prison van mm. and they can't go for a wee easily and, of course, you need to wee a lot when you're pregnant. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's part of the, the interesting but, but all, again, awful thing as well in this kind of difference between what the policy is and then the practice. So the pol- policy is that risk should be considered proportionate. So you would imagine that, say, somebody who is heavily pregnant is unlikely to be a flight risk and therefore be, you know, not required to, say, be attached to a chain when they're being, see, you know, reviewed by a clinician. But actually, we found when speaking to people about their experiences that they were aware of this, but then what happened to them was, did not always follow those guidelines. So, yeah. you know, you can have the best policy in the world, but it's about culture, isn't it? And and how people apply this at that particular moment in time when they're you know required to take somebody out to hospital and, yeah, and, th- and th- think about the implications if they were to escape and what it would mean for them and, you know... Yeah, yeah, the idea of a mm. very heavily pregnant woman mm. running at top speed is... It's unlikely, isn't it? It's but, unlikely. You know. <laughs> Certainly was in my case. Yes. I don't know about anybody yeah. else. Um, so could you uh, tell me the name of your report and if someone wanted to read it, where they would find it and if they wanted to know more? Yeah, sure. So um, our report is called uh, Inequality on the Inside, Using Hospital Data to Understand the Key Healthcare Issues for Women in Prison. So we have... Um, a web a web page for all the Nuffield Trust prisoner health work. So if you just Google Nuffield Trust Spotlight Prisoner Health, you can find all the work that we've done um, in this area. So there are kind of, there are research reports, but there's also um, blogs, um, collaborative pieces that we've done with other organisations. So we recently did um, a Q and A with Kirsty Kitchen from Birth Companions, talking particularly about this work and you know the the implications for pregnant um, women in prison. Um, and then it's also as well where all of our new work will be um, published. So soon we'll be publishing a new piece on uh, older people in prison as well. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming along to explain it all to me. Thank you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. 
Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.